Your lot in this life does not make you more or less spiritual. But your obedience to God's commands does. So remain with God in the salvation he has called you to and serve Christ with undivided devotion. That's my sermon theme this morning and the second, I want to say the second half, but it's kind of the second two-thirds. We kind of looked at the first third of chapter 7 last week and we're looking at the second two-thirds. We're looking at the We're looking at the Oreo cookie middle and the bottom layer of chocolate. That's what we're looking at this morning. That's kind of what chapter 7 looks like, and we already covered the top layer of chocolate. Part 1, verses 1 to 16, is what we looked at last week, and Paul was specifically answering a specific question written to him to answer by the church. Some in the church, because of their faulty view of the body, have said that you can become super spiritual if you abstain from sexual intimacy in marriage. And Paul completely disagrees. And he walks the members of the congregation in various life circumstances through the biblical understanding of sexual intimacy applied to those who are married, to those who are widowed, to those who are married to an unbeliever, and to those who have divorced or are considering divorce as a means to become more spiritual, which is utterly stupid. That's what Paul says. That's that's nonsense. Don't go in that direction. So in part two, which is our first part this morning, verses 17 to 24. And and frankly, this is the heart of the chapter. This is the part of the chapter that informs what came before and what comes after. Paul's going to say that changing your worldly circumstances, you know, like marriage, changing any of them, has nothing to do with becoming more holy. Holiness doesn't work that way. And in in the last part of the chapter, verses 25 to 40, Paul's going to explain how our direct service to God changes looks a little different, depending on whether we receive God's gift of marriage or his gift of singleness. So you can see in the sermon outline that we're looking at parts 2 and 3 of chapter 7, which begins in verse 17. Let me begin reading in verse 17, and I'll read to the end of the chapter. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man in the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain in God. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And betrothed to a woman marries, she, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. 
So from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as those who had no goods, and as those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control and is determined with this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well. And he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as she lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. This is the Word of God. Now you noticed in those first verses that Paul is going beyond the category of marriage to make his point here. He's added two new life circumstances, if you will, The categories of race or ethnicity and the category of social standing or cultural status. That's how I see those and that's how I'm going to argue those. The narrow question, the very narrow question, should I forego sex in marriage to become more spiritual, that's that's the question that began the chapter, has broadened a little bit to the question, does changing anything in my worldly circumstances make me more spiritual? Are there other things I can change in my lot in life that would make me more holy in God's sight? It's broadened just a little bit. And so that's the question that Paul's Paul's really answering here. Listen to his words again in verse 17. Because we looked at this last week, this is kind of the rubric that he's going by. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Now I I think these words can sound a little frightening to us. They sound, they sound a little restrictive to us, like we, like we accidentally deleted the only email that had our life assignment in it from God. Oh my God, it's one of those. I think, I think some of us might say, what, what life has God assigned to me? I still don't know. It's what I'm trying to figure out. I didn't get the memo that said, go to this school, marry this person, take that job. Oh no, wait, that job. You know, we, we didn't get that email. So the word assigned isn't meant to be that fixed and that rigid. We we hear that you've been given an assignment. So it's a from beginning to end period assignment. It's actually pretty flexible. It's, It's actually literally more segmented. God apportions your life to you, is what Paul says. He's handing this out as you go along. He sovereignly hands you portions as you go. So Paul is not saying... God has a wonderful plan for your life. Don't deviate from it. He's saying, 
God has a wonderful plan for your life. Don't deviate from him. Stick to God. He'll apportion your life for you. The life that you are to lead, because God is portioning it out to you, is the life that God has called you to. They're one and the same. What life has God called you to? Well, it's the life that Paul described to us way back in his greeting in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. He says to his audience, the Corinthians, you are the church of God. Those called to be sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, both theirs and ours. Live in the grace and peace that is from your God, the Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So leading this life, remaining in this life, is not only Paul's rule for each person in the church in Corinth, it's Paul's rule for all the persons in all the churches, he says. Even Christ Fellowship Church. Why? Because Paul's rule in chapter 7, verse 17, is coordinated with God's salvation in chapter 1, verse 2. This is the calling of God for all the churches. And so this is, this is the calling to live this life that Paul's applying to all the churches. And to live out this call, I, I think we can look at chapter 1, verse 9, which I referenced in my pastoral prayer. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ his Lord. That's where he's called you. That's where he wants you to remain. So when Paul says, remain where you are, he is not saying that you can never change jobs or move to a new house or apartment or even change political parties, as unlikely as that seems in our current culture. Remember, Paul is not forcing restrictions. The Corinthians are the ones forcing restrictions. Paul's highlighting God's grace. The Corinthians are the ones saying that you have to make radical changes to your or ordinary life, like abstaining from sex and marriage and getting divorced in order to be really holy. They're the ones saying that. Paul's the one saying, no, stop. Changing the circumstances of your ordinary life has nothing to do with being holy. And he uses these two examples, these, these examples that we would never come up with to prove his point. Look at verse 18. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his calling uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Paul says, when God called you to salvation, you were either circumcised or uncircumcised, and it didn't matter. It didn't hinder God from saving you. You didn't have to be one or the other in order to be made holy by God, and you don't have to change it now. Switching from one to the other will not increase your holiness. It won't affect your holy status with God at all. Still, it's a little shocking to hear Paul say that circumcision counts for nothing. I'm sure his Jewish hearers were like, oh no. He didn't say that. Circumcision was the sign of obedience in the Old Covenant. But circumcision of the flesh always pointed to what? Circumcision of the heart. Where the Holy Spirit removes the sin that covers our hearts. So that we can obey God. Which is what he's called us to. So in the New Covenant, circumcision of the flesh counts for nothing. Doesn't do anything. But Paul is really not talking to the Corinthians about 
circumcision as a covenant sign. He's really not talking about circumcision as a religious identifier because circumcision identifies two things. It, it identifies religion, yes, but also ethnicity. These are the Hebrew peoples and their descendants. Circumcision was not just a religious but also an ethnic identifier. And I'm arguing that circumcision here in Corinth is really teaching us about race and ethnicity. How was that the case? Well, in the Greco-Roman world back then, in order to excel, Jews needed to hide their ethnicity, their Jewish ethnic roots. Parenthetically, there's always been anti-Semitism. The nations have always raged against the Jews. There has been, and unfortunately there will always be, anti-Semitism in the fallen world. Christians need to know that and stand against that. But I know what you're thinking. Isn't circumcision, like, already hidden? I mean, how? I mean, who could possibly? What? Well, in that place and time, when children went to school or, or adults participated in athletics, which is part of their education and development, they didn't wear Lululemon joggers or Nike pants or Under Armour shorts. They were naked. That's how they conducted athletic games and exercises. Okay. But, but how does a circumcised man become uncircumcised? Well, there was actually a surgical procedure that would hide their circumcision. And that's all we need to know. Now, it's one thing to hide your ethnic heritage to get along in Greco-Roman culture. And it may help you there. But it's an entirely different thing to hide your ethnic heritage in order to become more holy before God. And Paul says, has no effect. It doesn't work. Instead, holiness comes from obeying God, doing what God commands from an obedience of the heart. God saves sinners from every tribe, tongue, and nation, holy in his sight, we're not called to somehow give up our ethnic identity that gave, God gave to us in the first place, in which God saved us in the second place, in order to be more holy. What we have to give up is our unbelief and our sinful boasting, and instead be found in Christ. So whether circumcised or uncircumcised, what matters is that we love God and serve Christ. That is the holy life to which we're called. It's Paul's first example. His second example is in verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man in the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were both bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So just as our racial or ethnic identity is of no consequence in relation to our holiness, neither is our cultural credit score or our socioeconomic standing. That's what I think slavery is pointing to here. Slavery, and, that, and that's really the word, that's really the word, although translated bondservant. Slavery is a sensitive subject for us because of America's history of race-based chattel slavery. I understand that. 
which was a sinful practice and one we all condemn. But that's not the institution of slavery that Paul's addressing here. No doubt slavery in Corinth was horrible for some slaves. But for many, it was just another category of social economic status. Slavery is the right word, but bondservant is generally and historically the right description for slavery in the first century in Corinth. The respect given uh, a slave corresponded to the respect given his master. If a slave was doing business and representing his master, he was treated with the same respect as his master was. But he wasn't free. But again, Paul says, when God called you to salvation, you were either a slave or a free man, and it didn't matter. It didn't hinder God from saving you. You didn't have to be one or the other in order to be made holy by God. So don't change. Switching from one to the other will not increase your holiness. It won't affect your holy status with God at all. Now, it may or may not make your worldly situation a little bit better. It might. Or it might not. So if the opportunity arises for freedom, you get to choose. Slavery in the Roman Empire was, was, was not supposed to be a lifetime thing. It didn't work that way. There were even laws to free slaves at certain ages. But many, for economic reasons or for family reasons, chose to remain in bondage, chose to remain bondservants. Now notice how Paul addresses both the slave and the free man. God sees Christian slaves as free in Christ. And God sees Christian free men as slaves to Christ. Because whether slave or free, you were bought with a price. The precious blood of Christ. You are free from sin and death. You belong to God. Jesus is your master. And so serve him. So whether slave or free, do not now become bond, bound to the ways of men. You're... You're in bondage to Christ, and that's good. Don't go back and be in bondage to men. Don't be the least bit concerned about your socioeconomic status in Corinth. What matters is that you're in Christ. Whether slave or free, serve him. Remain where God called you. This is a big one for us. Because in the, in the socioeconomic world, we're kind of equating that with our, with our job world our socioeconomic world. Our culture demands that we always advance, doesn't it? Always excel, always move up, always improve your standing. It's the American dream. Do that or be a loser. But you don't have to adopt that view. You can be content right where you are, with God, serving Christ. Yes, you are free to plan your own career path. Apply for a new job. Apply for a better job. But while you wait to be called for that interview, don't obsess over it. Let it be of no concern to you. Work hard and serve Christ where you are. When the offer's made, then you get to choose. You see, too many waste too much time obsessing about the greater, greener field. The grass over there, 
the pastor over While you're here, you're obsessing about being over there. And, and, and in that way, we fail to serve Christ in the pastor he's placed you in. Or at least the pastor he's placed you in for now. Keep your head in the game. Keep your head in the game where you are. Work that job for Christ, the one that you have. Serve those people for Christ, the one that Christ has placed you in and around and among. I think that's what, I think that's what Paul would advise us to do. And then he repeats. This is the third time he says this in verse 24. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. There let him remain with God. It's the third time Paul has said this because this is a a big one for us. God is apportioning your life to you. Remain with him. Live your life in the grace and peace that Christ has provided and given to you. Serve Christ there in the grace and peace that you have. God is apportioning his life, your life to you. Remain with him. Live your life there. And, and the idea of serving suddenly kind of, kind of rises to the top and becomes the emphasis of this next section. Remember, he's, he talked about marriage earlier. Now he's made this point. There isn't any of your worldly circumstances that you change that render you automatically more holy before God. It doesn't do that. It's your obedience to God. It's living the life he's called you to that makes you holy before God. And so he's going to go back to talking about marriage now among the unmarried people, and he's going to be speaking objectively about what it means to serve God. That's kind of the point, whether married or single. Look at verse 25. Now concerning, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Now concerning the betrothed, which, which is often translated virgins, so he's, he's mostly focusing on people who've never married, you know, he seems to be introducing a new question. That, that now concerning uh, seems to be the introduction of a new question or the second part of a two-part question. That's how I, I think this is kind of the follow-up aspect of the first question. It's not about foregoing marriage in order to maximize your holiness, but foregoing marriage in order to maximize your service. That's kind of the emphasis that this takes. So the question Paul is answering now is, can't a single person serve God better? than a married person? You know, in my single life, don't I have greater capacity to serve God than I would in my married life? That's the question that Paul's answering. And Paul seems to agree with them. A single person does offer more direct service to God than a married person. More direct service. Sounds like an airline, right? We offer more direct service uh, to the Portland Jetport than other airlines. Now, now the offer of direct service, that's, that's right. The single plane lands only at the Portland Jetport, but the married plane lands at Logan International and the Portland Jetport. I mean, that's, that's kind of an illustration. Paul agrees with where they land. Paul agrees with this idea of service. The single person can devote all their concern directly to the things of God. But the married person must devote concern to their spouse and to God. 
That's the objective reality that Paul's pointing out. Paul doesn't agree with their reasoning. He says, well, well, that's kind of true, but I don't agree with what you're saying or how you get there at all. His reason is completely different. He has already rejected their reasoning. Their reason begins with, we shouldn't have sex in marriage, so we shouldn't marry at all, so we can serve God better, and this will make us more spiritual. That's their argument. And Paul says, that's rubbish. But since the question is asked in that format, Paul's answer is in this format. That's what we need to understand. Why is Paul talking about marriage in this really strange way? Because because he's answering a really strange question. That, that's why it's this way. And, and, and it, you know, it goes back to what we talked about last week. It goes back to making Paul look like a mean old bachelor apostle who hates marriage and commands everyone to be single and become missionaries like him. But that's just not true. That's not at all what Paul's doing here. Paul hasn't forgotten what he wrote to husbands and wives in Ephesus. You husbands are to love your wives as service to the Lord. And, and you wives are to respect and serve your husbands as your service to the Lord. Your marriage is a glorious picture of the gospel in your service together as the Lord. Paul remembers that. All of that is still in play. Paul knows those things. But Paul's not answering a question about that. And so Paul tells the Corinthians twice that marriage is not a sin. <laughs> what? Why in the world would an apostle need to tell a church that it's not a sin to get married? What in the world are these people thinking? Well, they're thinking that they can serve God better single, and so it must be a sin to marry. That's why Paul has to say that. Paul says, well, there's a sense in which you can serve God better single, but your thinking on the matter is completely wrong. So let's read again what Paul says beginning in verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers, that the appointed time has grown very short. You know, this is, this is Paul talking, and he says, okay, I'm not issuing a command. Remember before there was always the confusion when Paul says, well, this is from the Lord, uh, and this is from me. There was, there was confusion about which one was authoritative. They're both authoritative. But here's Paul. Paul's actually saying, I'm, 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 I'm trying to answer your question with some judgment. I'm trying to use some pastoral empathy and answer your question here. Choosing to get married or to remain single is within your Christian liberty. You see, the Corinthians, who are dividing the church with their nonsense, would take your Christian liberty from you. They try it again later in later chapters, as we'll see. But Paul says both marriage and celibacy are good. Both are gifts from God. But in his judgment, his best advice for those who are unmarried is to remain unmarried. Now, now this is generic advice. Or, I'm sorry, this is not generic advice. This is specific advice. 
his specific advice to these people in the Corinthian church. Remember the question. If your genuine and sincere concern is to maximize your direct service to God, then Paul agrees you should remain single if that's your goal. Paul is not saying that marriage is bad or sinful or only for the spiritually weak. He does not agree with the Corinthians. Paul does not say being single is better than being married. He does not say that married people don't serve God at all. He's not saying any of those things. I think when we read this passage, it sounds, it, it sounds sort of discouraging to both married people and single people. But it's not. It's not Paul's answer that makes it sound discouraging. It's the question that Paul's answering that makes it sound discouraging. It's actually very encouraging. You get so lost here reading this because if you don't understand the question and if you don't stay focused on that question, the passage doesn't make any sense at all. Paul says, well, if you're unmarried, you should stay unmarried. And the single people go, yay. But, but if you want to marry, it's okay. And the single people go, boo. Wait a minute, what's, what, which, which one is it? Well, if you get married, you're going to have troubles. That's right, that's right. So we should stay single. But if you, but if you marry, it's going to be fine. Because that's God's gift to you and you'll do well. Wait, wait, what? I mean, the whole passage is utterly confusing if you don't know the question. And if the question is broad, you're going to have, you're going to have just confusion. But if this is the question. If it's really about this, it's about this, this misdirected idea about service to God making you more spiritual. Paul takes that question and he, and he makes it serious by saying, if this is your genuine goal to serve God, not your silly, this is going to make me more spiritual than other people and I can boast about it goal, but your genuine goal, then there is a truth there. And I want to point out the realities, the realities that are, that are within that. It's the question that Paul is answering that makes it sound discouraging, but it's actually very encouraging because your holy status is not affected if you change your marital status. Any more than if you were to change your ethnic or your social status, which is what he had argued. But if all you want to do is to serve God, then the best way to do that is to remain single. In Paul's judgment. It's Paul's honest advice. And he gives his reasons. And they're, and they're kind of interrelated. There are a couple of reasons. See, we and the Corinthians live in, in this present distress. You see that phrase. I don't think this is an eschatological term. He doesn't say the coming distress. You see, we all live in this present distress. We all live in the last days between Christ's first advent, his first coming to save, and his future advent, his coming to judge and set up his kingdom. And so, there are decisions to be made. We have to live in this world and not be of this world. We have to <clears throat> navigate troubled waters, where to send our kids to school, how to behave ethically at work, where morality has just gone haywire. Participating as citizens in a society. We live in a civic realm around us. Facing persecution as Christians. We have to navigate all these different things. And it's easier to make decisions for one than it is for a whole family that you love. You see? You know, if I was facing martyrdom, for the faith. If they came to me and put a gun to my head, sounds dramatic. I sure hope it is. 
I would think differently about martyrdom as a single man than if I were married and had kids. Wouldn't you? You know, I was, I was thinking about an illustration. Um, so, so I'm sorry, you're going to have to go to the battlefield with this. Put on, put on your army cap. So I think, I think that uh, in, in the way Paul describes these things, marriage is kind of like heavy infantry. Heavy infantry. And being single is like light infantry. Heavy infantry moves slower, but it has more firepower. They're used to take and to hold ground. Light infantry is lightning fast. They can change direction on a dime. They can strike quickly. They're good at taking ground, but they're, they're designed to hold it for long. There's just a difference between these two infantries. Both are fighting the same present distress, but they're operating differently. Your responsibilities, <clears throat> and therefore your troubles, are multiplied when you married and when you have children. There's more logistics to handle. There's a bigger unit to handle and move into place. And Paul says your appointed time is so short. Your appointed time is short. <clears throat> and so he says this, picking up in verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. And from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as those, as those that were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with the world. For the present form of this world is passing away. You know, if God has apportioned to me a wife, how am I to lead a life as if I don't have a wife, Paul? I, what is that? That sounds confusing to me. Or, or how am I to mourn but, but it not look like I'm mourning or rejoice and it not sound like I'm rejoicing? How, how am I supposed to do that? And Paul's point in this passage is that we're to live with this sense of urgency because we are in, these, we are in this last day period so when you marry, when you mourn, when you rejoice, when you conduct business, Paul's saying, do it in a certain manner. Do it in a certain way. Do it such that these things don't overtake your life in God. Do it so that these things don't squelch your service to God. Don't, don't let them take you off of your life of salvation, the life that God has called you to, your, your call of duty in, which, in whichever one of the infantries you enlist. Don't let it do that. Do not love this world or the things of the world. Love God and serve Christ in all things. That's what he's saying there. These last days are not only a time of distress. They're a day of salvation. That's why this matters in the first place to Paul. With the coming of Christ, Satan the strongman is bound and the church is plundering his earthly kingdom of souls by the power of the gospel. We're not supposed to be hiding in foxholes. The spirit-filled church is on the offensive and the gates of hell will not overcome her. Don't boast about being married or boast about being single. Boast in the cross of Christ. That's what Paul would say. Which leads Paul to this, this second reality beginning in verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. 
But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about the worldly things, how to please her husband. And I'm saying this to your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It's no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. When we look at that word anxiety, it's like we all see red. Everything's, all alarms are going off. Anxiety's troublesome. Anxiety's negative to us. Uh, Paul doesn't mean to be negative. He's really trying to be objective here. Uh, commentators prefer the words concern or responsibility. If you look at different Bible translations, you'll find the word concern instead of anxieties, which is what the ESV chooses, or responsibility. Paul wants you to be free from any unnecessary concerns. That's what he says. That makes sense here. You won't bear any responsibilities that you don't take on. Specifically, the right and good responsibilities that you would have towards your spouse if you choose to marry. Paul's not saying these responsibilities are negative. He's simply saying, objectively, they're an addition. The single man or single woman's only responsibility is to serve God. You're free from other concerns because you're free from the concerns of others. And we're like, yeah, that makes sense. That's totally obvious to us. For some reason, when we read Paul's answer to the question, we're like, gosh, this sounds negative. No, that's all he's saying. At the same time, the married man and the married woman have two responsibilities, if you will. The married, as married Christians, they have the same responsibility to serve God as single Christians do. But they are also properly concerned about their wife or their husband. Yes, of course that's true. Of course that makes sense. Paul's simply stating facts objectively. That's why I would, I would take out the word anxieties and I would say proper concerns. They have proper concerns for the things of God. And those who are married have proper concerns for their wives and husbands and the things of God. He's simply stating facts. But, but why these facts again? In order to answer the specific question from the Corinthians about maximizing personal direct service to God. Paul, and, and, and as soon as he says that, Paul's quick to say out loud, I'm not commanding marriage. And I'm not commanding singleness. I'm just using my judgment to answer your very narrow and specific question. Paul has offered his best advice to those Corinthians who genuinely want to maximize their personal direct service to God. But to everyone else, he says, you're free to marry. You're free to marry. If the life God calls you to lead includes his good gift of a spouse, live holy lives in that one flesh relationship together and serve God together and you'll do well that's going to be great if the life God calls you to lead includes his good gift of singleness and celibacy then you should maximize your service to God the gift of singleness is not so that you can have more me time it's for you to offer undivided service to God that's why in this specific way, 
He says, in that specific way, you'll do even better. Because that's the question you were asking me about. And that's the answer that I give to you. Paul says again, speaking to widows, that they're free to marry another if they choose to. But but she's to marry a Christian. She's to marry in the Lord. And yet Paul says, in my judgment, she's happier if she reigns as she is. Which means more than just remaining unmarried, although it does mean that. It also contains Paul's rule that she should go on living a life with God that's apportioned to her. Which is to remain with God and to live in the salvation he's called her to. Same thing as back at the middle of the, middle of the chapter. He just touches on, on widows there for a moment. And then at the end of all this, Paul says one last thing to the Corinthians. You know, and he, I think he looks them right in the eye. I know he's writing a letter, but I think he looks them right in the eye. Right? And he says... And I think I, too, have the Spirit of God. I, I, I think that's fun, <laughs> right? Because these Corinthians, we're going through all of this because these Corinthians, so boastful in their spiritual gifts, so, so boastful of their, their spirituality. Oh, I'm more holier than you. I follow this group. I do this. I do that. I don't even have sex in marriage. In fact, I'm getting divorced to make sure it never happens. I'm so spiritual. They have all these wrong ideas of spirituality that actually end up making them unspiritual. They boast in their spirit gifts. And I think the Apostle Paul puts his finger in their chest. You know, like that. Just like that. He's not there. It's a letter, but he does that. And he says, I have the spirit too, bub. Right? Because he really does. Because he really does. They're not pursuing genuine spirituality. Just like they have throughout this letter, they've gone outside the church to find pagan ideas and cultural means to try to further their spiritual godliness. And it just doesn't work. They're not the spiritual ones. He is. And what he's writing here is inspired by the Holy Spirit and preserved for us by the Holy Spirit because it, his, words, his words really are authoritative. And, 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 and look back. He wasn't commanding people. He said, here's my best judgment. If you want me to take you seriously about your individual service to God before you get married, if you want me to take you seriously, here's my best judgment. His words are gracious. Here's the answer. But remember, <laughs> you're free to marry. Here's the answer. But you're free to marry, and it'll be good. And if you want to be single, you're free to be single. And serve God more. If that's the life that he's called you to, remain in him and in his salvation. And so he's, his words are correcting an error, and they're restoring peace and order to marriage and to the congregation. Because they're divorcing over this. And they're not allowed to do that. So this... This has to do with understanding that we pursue holiness by pursuing Christ. We pursue greater spirituality, if you want to use that word, by pursuing the things of the Spirit. By remaining in God. Not by doing extraordinary things. By doing ordinary things. Like getting married or staying single. Like loving your wife, loving your husband. Or serving the Lord because you're single. 
all of these ordinary things God has called us to. He apportions them to us in our life. You don't have to change your race or ethnicity or your social status even. It won't affect your holiness before God. It works on a completely different, on a completely different way. It works through obedience. Who is the one who loves God? The one who obeys his commands, Jesus says. What, what, were, what were commands in the Old Testament to, to try to guide the nation to salvation as God's people are simply now the, the character that we pursue as saved people. We get to look at those things and obey the commands of God, and, and in that way, in that way, he sets us apart as holy. You know, there's, there's one more direct application I would make. Uh, before I close, and it would simply be, if you're supposed to remain where God's put you, and you're supposed to serve Christ there, and to do it with zeal, if this is the church where God's put you, serve here. Serve. Serve Christ. If, if this is the fellowship God has apportioned to you, dig in. Dig in and, and participate in the church's prayer ministry. Dig in and participate in the church's children's ministry. Dig in and serve God. Serve the body of Christ so that we would be, we would be built up in the love of God. That's the call of God, directly related to where we are and where he has put us. And so I'd encourage you to do that. Your lot in this life does not make you more or less spiritual. But your obedience to God's commands does. So remain with God in the salvation he has called you to and serve Christ with undivided devotion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your Spirit's help in understanding this difficult passage. It's just not easy. And it can be confusing. And so we ask that uh, you'd continue uh, to teach us what this means. It's not how we would have asked the question, but we're grateful for the answer. That you have called us to live lives that you're giving to us. That you've called us to remain with you in the salvation that you have called us to. That you have placed us in this fellowship together in the fellowship of Christ. That we might serve you well. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to know these things and do these things. That we would indeed remain with God and serve Christ. It's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.